what's up y'all it's Zach with Living Corporate you know I continue to be reflective as we uh, push through and continue Black History Month you've heard you know different conversations I've been excited for the fact that we've been able to have uh, but I also think about like looking back right like we've had so many conversations dialogues with people that I genuinely really and truly respect and what I really appreciate about living corporate is you typically won't see discussions or dialogues that don't challenge systems and structures and how they need to be reimagined for the sake of equity for black and brown people we don't really do the whole like I don't know like Brene Brown Miltose type presentation and we rarely if ever ignore uh, the systemic barriers um, and historical realities of historically marginalized groups we try to really try to bring all those things center right so you hear that in our Pfizer series that we got going on you're going to hear that um, in some um, some spotlights and work that we're going to be doing with Cap Gemini throughout this year you're going to continue to hear that you heard that in, um, in our, our campaign with uh, Amazon Web Services for Hispanic Heritage Month like you're going to continue to hear us um, really just speak to the realities of what things are and we, we do that um, because one it honors our mission uh, and then two, because we're not really we're not bought by anybody. And so because we're not bought by anybody, we're not really beholden to anybody. You know, we are in a place where we can speak honestly and openly about just where we're at. And so, you know, we're going to continue to do that. Um, to that end, I'm appreciative of the conversation we were able to have uh, with Lily Zhang. Lily Zhang is a uh, a friend of the show. <laughs> um, we had we've had them on now two times uh, before, you know, back in 2021. Um, but but this time we're talking a little bit about like just the DEI industry as a whole and how it's failing and how to hold uh, corporations accountable, right? And, and by any measure, um, the, the DEI space is failing. It's, it, it is failing, right? This is not really like some really complex or, or bold take. You know, you're talking about, you know, a, a multi-billion dollar industry that has not really resulted in any meaningful change. Like what, like what have we actually seen happen? And I, I think that I think that it's important for us as we have our dialogues around the DEI space that we we embrace the, the facts, right? The fact is that uh, black representation has not dramatically improved in, in all levels of an organization. The facts remain that uh, when layoffs happen, black people are going to be primarily and disparately impacted by those decisions. Uh, the facts are that when you talk about performance management and any type of like written performance reviews, that black and brown people are going to continue to be the ones that have the lowest reviews. The facts are that when it comes to promotion cycles, that black folks are going to be the ones typically held back and underpaid. Right. While if you were to measure their sentiment and really understand their experience as they engage their jobs day to day. 
that they're probably also overworked and undersponsored and undersupported. These are all just realities, right? Like I, I spoke, uh, I spoke with a family member of mine who just recently retired, and again, he's about he retired, and he's talking to me about him having to advocate for equitable treatment, right? Towards the end of his career and them trying to pay him off, right? Like these are realities, but, and yet we've spent billions of dollars over the past 20 years in quote unquote diversity, equity, and inclusion. I, we have to be honest. Um, And so, you know, again, this conversation we had uh, with Lily is about their book, DEI Deconstructed, Your No-Nonsense Guide to Doing the Work and Doing It Right. Um, This was actually published uh, last November. Um, I want to put the link in the show notes. Make sure you check it out. I'm not going to even get too much further into the conversation. I really appreciate Lily because they are so cerebral and intentional and yet approachable in how they talk about this space, how they talk about this work and, and they get into the practicality, like how to practically enact change in these organizations. Because they don't hit you with a bunch of flowery words and like complex, just white liberal jargon. They're talking to you in plain English about what needs to happen and shift and change. And for that, I appreciate them. I appreciate them for a variety of other reasons, but certainly I appreciate them for that. So all that being said, the next thing you're going to hear after we run a few uh, little breaks for you, you know what I'm saying? Because we got some other messages for you. You're going to hear my conversation with the Lily Zhang. See you in a minute. Lily. Hi. <laughs> it's good to be back. Welcome to the <laughs> It's so good to have you back. I recall um, we were talking off mic. Our last conversation was published on March 2nd of 2021. It's been about a year and a half. Um, you know, like you're it. back. It doesn't, it doesn't. It feels like it was it was like last week, but it also feels like it's been 10 years. At the same time, right? Yep. I, I, I think... You know, the last time we had a conversation, we were talking about, we were having a discussion around really like anti-Asian uh, racism and right. systems that that create like, that create and perpetuate oppression across all historically marginalized groups. Right, and also we were how, talking about like solidarity between Asian and black communities, right? And yes, and the, yes. the fear mongering and the, yeah, okay. That was a yes. fun conversation. It was a fun conversation. I, I Look, I... You know, I I always appreciate the thoughtfulness uh, that you have when like, like just let's just talk about LinkedIn specifically. Like, you're always in a. It seems like you always operate in this space where you're engaging and thinking intersectionally. Like you're, and you're all, and you look at things systemically. Like you're you're not really one that I've seen to kind of kind of go off of emotionality or like the hot button issue. Like you're you're really great to me. And like getting to root cause and like the and and identifying the elements of a thing that need to be dismantled mm. for actual progress and impact. That is what I go for. Yeah, I don't always succeed, but but I'm I'm, I'm flattered to hear that that comes out more often than not because it really is what I what I go for whenever I post. 
a thousand percent. Um, and you know, so we, I know we're here. We're going to talk about your your latest book, D.I. or your, up, your forthcoming book. It's actually, um, actually out already. It's out. It's out November eighth. I'm looking out. at it right here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's been out for two weeks. Um, and That's it's right. Been some of the busiest two weeks of my life. <laughs> That's been, right. That's right. It's been really intense. Um, yeah, I'm I'm thrilled to talk about it. And and not just the book, but like more importantly, all of the applications of the ideas in here on like. Right everyone's lives on on folks workplaces right because like i don't know i can promote my book all i want but but like ideally people buy the book not because they're like oh well like lily wrote it that's cool but like because they genuinely believe that it's going to do some good for them and their their companies right so so Real that's no. that's what i hope we we talk about Look, I'm hoping the same thing. The book is called DEI Deconstructed, your no-nonsense guide to doing the work and doing it right. Um, I So, again, we talked off mic, but also, like, I've been having conversations on and off mic um, with a bunch of different folks about the fact that, Lily, I'm just not really clear on how far, and even before I even say how far, like, just what this work, quote-unquote, the work is, within capitalist context, right? Like, so, you know, we had W. Kamal Bell on like earlier this year mm-hmm. and I asked him straight up, I was like, hey, look, like, do you believe that like there can be meaningful work in the DNI space, like in, a, in the DEI space in a capitalist context? And he was like, no, mm. no, I don't. Right, um, which was funny because his book was all about, I think his book was called Do the Work. And it was like a really like interesting guide on like for it was really for dei practitioners mm-hmm. um but i i just i don't know like i'm i'm still trying to figure out like what does it really mean to, for to be to exist in this space to really be pushing in this space when again like it's the 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 boundaries are only so like the the, the roadway is only so long and frankly, the activities, even the language, all of it to at a certain point, it, there seems to be a really firm brick wall. Like, I'm curious to get your perspective on that. Yeah, no, well, that's a, first of all, what an incredible starting question, starting it off with a, with a big one. Um, so short answer, I think it's possible to do the work, quote unquote, to achieve DEI within capitalism. However... Mm-hmm. That requires that we be really honest with ourselves about the limits and extent to which this work is successful. So, so I tell people a lot, you know why I don't say I'm a Jedi practitioner? Why, why I don't put the J in my DEI? Um, because I don't think the J can happen without us dismantling capitalism. And I'm not right. confident that as a practitioner working in the way that I am, that I'm doing justice work. And you know what? That's okay. Like, this is the thing, like, like a lot of folks enter DEI work because they want to fix the world. They want to be better people. Um, and, and, and that's noble and that's incredible. And right. Like if you enter into, like you said, you know, patriarchal capitalist systems that are designed to extract and, and destroy things. And you set about with the mission of, of fixing everything then you're going to quickly be very disappointed that like you can't do everything at once. I have a lot of friends and a lot of colleagues that don't work in corporate spaces that are activists, that are advocates, that do community building, that do direct action. And you know what I tell them? I tell them my work wouldn't do anything without all of you. Like y'all are doing justice work. I'm not doing justice work. 
Like, right. at best, I'm I'm doing harm reduction. I'm making sure these capitalistic systems aren't screwing over more people than they already are. And you know what? That's right. valuable because, um, gosh, you know, the 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 uh, revolution won't come tomorrow. Like that's that's the reality, yeah. right? And I. I'm ready and, and, and I'm really excited to build a better world outside of capitalism. And in the meantime, while we do that, while lots of folks are working towards that, um, we need a way to make the current reality, the current environment, less of a hellscape for everyone embedded within it. And so as long yeah. as you know people like myself and folks in this industry are real about the extent of the impact we can make, yeah. I think there's a hell of a lot of good DEI practitioners can do within capitalism, primarily in harm reduction. We can make organizations that are at the very least more sustainable than they are at present. We can make working conditions that are a hell of a lot healthier and less discriminatory. We can make workplaces be a place that maybe people aren't like jazzed to go to, but at the very least they're not traumatized by the idea of coming to work in the morning. And any yeah. progress we, we can make there is good like that's that's just like you know non-ambiguously just good stuff that's good work but it's not justice yeah and i think so i i think that there's to your point i also shy away from i honestly also i we had we had another guest on um, um donna brownlee dana brownlee and we we're talking about anti-racism work and how even that is like unique and different from dei work and like shared her perspective there. I think that mm. when you start getting into like the concepts of like justice or being, or the, even like the anti piece, some of those things, it's like, okay, so are we ready to like enact policies that radically like redistribute power? Because like, and, and also correct uh, or, you know, create wholeness or uh, make folks whole from historical mistakes that have happened in the organization. Because if we're not, then right. I'm not really comfortable using the anti term or the justice term or justice because we're not going to. I mean, it's, you have to like it from in the way my my framework demands that those things happen. To your point, though, like framing things in the context of harm reduction feels one, not only more accurate, but more emotionally and intellectually honest. In that, it feels honest to me. It feels achievable, right? So this is the thing, and it feels right? achievable. Like, like, look, if if your company is bleeding out all of its women, its queer folks, its Asian folks, Black folks, Latinos, right? Um, let's say your turnover rate for these groups is sixty percent, and we get it down to ten percent. Have you fixed the entire world? No, but have you like meaningfully made your company a better place to be for members of these groups? Yeah, and. Right. Like that's a that's a contained problem. That's a solvable problem. We can fix it. We can make it better. And, you know, the sooner we see our work as as valid and and as a series of of efforts to fix this sort of stuff and being OK with the fact that this isn't the same as us ending capitalism, um, then like I, I, I think that gets us to a better place rather than like playing with all of these big words and trying to convince ourselves that what, what we're doing is dismantling cis heteropatriarchy or being anti-racist. Like, 
at the end of the day, there's a passage in in my book where I basically argue, and this is controversial, um, where I argue that like I'm I'm tired of the term anti-racist. It doesn't mean anything at this point because it keeps being a set of moving goalposts, and it keeps us from actually doing quote unquote the work, whatever the work is. Like I don't care if you call yourself an anti-racist or not. Like what I care about is what you've achieved. So right. you can read how to be an anti-racist, white fragility. You can read all the books. Hell, you can read my book. And if you don't do Jack, then like, doesn't matter. Or right. you can try to spend, I don't know, 10 hours a week doing a whole bunch of things. And if your impact is nothing, then I don't care. It doesn't matter. You haven't achieved anything. And on the other hand, you can just not read any DEI book. You can not know any of the fancy terms. And if you make a team in your company where everyone can thrive, I'd say you've done more than the person styling themselves an anti-racist because you've achieved more. Your outcomes are better. And the more we can focus on these outcomes of actually doing what we say we're going to do rather than like the terminology we use to talk about our intentions, like the better our field will be for it. Yeah, I mean, there's there's so much there's such a there's such a, a, a vibrant business in the in folks creating language um and terms to to sell things right not to actually do anything but just oh, yeah. to sell stuff it's called right? manufactured demand um and uh people's people's closest proximity to it is bottled water actually yeah um yeah like the the whole bottled water industry uh, was created by convincing relatively wealthy-ass white people who had perfectly fine tap water in their communities that somehow bottled water was better. Um, <laughs> uh, now, not not to say bottled water isn't great and, you know, whatever, right? It's good that we have it, especially for communities that don't have access to clean drinking water. Um, but I see it very similarly in that, like, a lot of DEI work is making up new standards to hold people to, to sell more products, to sell more services, right? Like we just keep tacking on more things to the acronym. And, and um, you know, the big, big thing now is throwing the word intersectional in front of everything um, to the point where it's lost all meaning. It's like, we need to involve, we need to create intersectional activism to make sure our intersectional identities can intersectionally include all of our intersections in our intersectional culture. And I'm like, stop, I'm having an aneurysm. Like, I don't, I don't know what you're saying anymore right like <laughs> i think like there's some there's so much there around like I, I again that's why i'm really excited about about your book and and frankly like it because i we've had conversations we've had on and off mic conversations in the past like i'm not this isn't like a surprise that that you would be the person to write write something like this that it's about look what are you doing Right. Like we had a season and, and this happens before like this, um, the murder of George Floyd, um, you know, it elevated a, a season of it. But before George Floyd's murder, like we were already in a season of just really just um, ambiguous language and um, high sentiment, low quantity, quanti quantitatively measurable results mm -hmm. um but but you know we're, we're we're even more in that now i i guess like let's say you're talking to the average um 
diversity inclusion leader, diversity equity inclusion leader, the average Jedi, the average inclusion of whatever variation of term you want to use, the average HR person, and they've been tasked to create more, to do something, right? To check boxes, to do something. Like, where do you tell them to start, right? Yeah. Like, right? Like, these folks are, you You and I both know, these folks are typically uh, under understaffed, undersupported, underpaid, um, overtaxed in With terms no of- No power, what no resources, no headcount. No power, no resources, no, no headcount. Yep. No authority. Like, where, where, do, where do they start, Lily? Yeah. So, first of all, if you are in this position, you have to understand that, like, if you're not set up to succeed, there is some personal calculus you need to do to decide whether or not you want to stay in that organization. Because in, in some companies, right, if you are not set up to succeed to such an extent that you should get out, like, I, there's there's nothing more I can say. Like, if you, you have absolutely no power, you can't do anything, your budget is like, I don't know, a thousand bucks for the year, um, no advice I can give you will help. You just got to get out of there. Now, lots of other folks, thankfully, are in a slightly better place where they have some power, some resources, some access. It's not great, but it's like workable. So my advice to those folks would be don't just pick something to do. That's the biggest mistake you can make. You've been tasked to do something. It's your job to make sure that you do the right thing or you do an effective thing. And the devil's in the details of what right or effective means. So I would start by saying... DEI work is only useful if it solves a real problem or meets a real need. So if you don't know what the problems are or you don't know what the needs are, then you're going to waste your time doing nothing, right? Like one of the examples that I use is like, let's say you you hear a call for help outside of your, your window, right, late at night. Um, a lot of DEI work is the equivalent of picking up a fire extinguisher, throwing it outside the window, and then patting yourself on the back. Like... I just picked a random intervention, threw it at the source of the problem, not even going to check to see what happens, and I'm done. I did it. I succeeded. I win. Um, and that's complete BS, right? Like, you have no idea whether the thing you did addresses a real problem. You have no, no way to keep yourself accountable to check in on whether the problem's been solved, and there's no follow-up. So start, right, just by assessing what problems exist in your org. So start by interviewing people, talking to people. We, we talk a lot about listening tours. I, I think they're underutilized. People use them a lot as like, I'm building relationships with folks. No, you are understanding, triaging, and diagnosing the problems of the organization. Like, it's not just chatting with folks over coffee. You're trying to desperately, as quickly as you can, understand everything that's broken about your company, right? And bring them back to say, okay, this is my understanding of all the challenges. These are the barriers. These are the obstacles. I'm going to make a theory of change, um, uh, basically a set of hypotheses about these are the barriers, this is what's lacking. I hypothesize that if I introduce intervention A into this situation, this will create outcome B, which will then lead to this situation C. And then you start doing the work. And I can't tell you what that work is because I don't know what problems you face and I don't know what interventions will work. But for example, Let's say you go into your company and you find that everyone's really pissed off at microaggressions. Everyone's talking about them. All your staff of color is worried about them, is stressed by them. Your women's staff are frustrated. Your queer and trans staff are frustrated. And you talk to these folks and they say, sometimes I go between teams and one manager's great and the other manager is just god awful. And 
I never want to change teams in my company, which is severely limiting my career growth. And let's say you hear that multiple times. Then you can say, okay, in this situation, it seems like manager consistency is a problem. And it seems like managers that are not doing a great job creating inclusive environments are getting away with being shitty people. So let's try to fix that problem. Maybe some interventions we can use are setting standards for management behavior. Um, maybe some things we can do are including three, 360 or multi-rater um, assessments at the end of the year and include inclusive leadership into that. Maybe we can create new trainings for leaders. Maybe we can you know, identify the leaders that are having the most trouble and get them individualized coaching. Let's say you pick one of these things, do it, deploy it, you collect more data on it. You say, does it work? Did it work? Did it fix the problem? If yes, good, do more of it. If no, do something else. And this is now the building blocks of your very own, very small DEI program. Now, did I, did I mention at any point, like, go search on Google, good DEI practitioner, and bring in a speaker? No, because that wasn't the solution to this problem. And you need to get better if you're a practitioner in the solution to empowering yourself to be a problem solver, not just, you know, a hired head to bring in someone from the outside to give a nice speech and go away. If you're if that's the only thing you're able to do, you're part of the problem. You know, so much of what you describe and even how you describe like this space of diversity, equity, inclusion work, like within corporate workplaces or corporate contexts. You know, it's it's much more cerebral than I think people give it space for, despite all of the conversations and all the things that have transpired over the last two and a half years or so. You know, I think we're still in a place where we don't really know what good looks like no. when it comes to diversity, equity, inclusion. And we don't and we don't really have a core uh, rubric of competence for uh, a diversity, equity, inclusion leader or um consultant or professional i'll say quote unquote professional practitioner is a better word yeah um first i'm curious to get your perspective on why you think that is and then two what do you believe it looks like to create a uh, a standard for what good dei work looks like oh standards okay this is one of my favorite questions cuz i think the the industry is dramatically lacking in standards right now. Um, so first of all, asking me to give an overview of general competencies of practitioners is difficult because it's the equivalent of saying what makes a good engineer or what what makes a good scientist. There is like a million kinds of engineers, a million kinds of scientists, and the DEI space is no different. The skills you'll need to be a good workshop facilitator versus a good data analyst, versus a good executive coach, versus a good communications professional, completely different. The overlap is very small for all of these. And one of the things we haven't talked about enough in the DEI space is how to differentiate the different kinds of DEI work that exist. Now, if you wanted me to build out a full-scale DEI department in a company, I'd have all of these professionals. I'd have trainers, I'd have coaches, I'd have facilitators, I'd have analysts, uh, data scientists, researchers, I've had, I would have comms professionals, I, I would, have, would have legal professionals, um, because there's so many different dimensions of DEI work done effectively in all of these different spheres. So there's that. 
And the competencies required for each of these roles would be dramatically different. Because um, what would make a good data analyst doesn't always make a good comms writer, right? Um, now, if you want me to talk about like general proficiencies, which is, by the way, where the field's getting bogged down because we're trying to come up with a one-size-fits-all of like, all DEI practitioners need to be able to do this. Um, and there are some things, I, I think, right? Like one of them is systems thinking. You need to be able to move beyond just thinking about people as individuals, but also look at systems and diagnose systems. You need to have, for most folks, a high EQ and be able to you know, connect with people and understand people and their needs and their desires and communicate effectively. But beyond that, I think the skills and competencies really are highly dependent on what kind of DEI work you do. The root cause of the fact that there's so little alignment between DEI folks and the companies they work in is that companies have no idea what they need. And so sometimes a company will say, hey, we, we want a DEI professional just general. And so they bring in someone who's an incredible, I don't know, workshop facilitator. And they say, we need you to design a DEI survey. Completely different things. And so I don't care if you're the best facilitator in the world, you're going to design a shitty survey because you have no idea how to design surveys, right? And companies haven't asked for the right thing. Or they'll say, hey, we really want to undergo our DEI efforts. We really want some interpersonal facilitation. We want some executive coaching. And they bring in a DEI data scientist who has very little EQ and doesn't connect well with leaders and just wants to talk about data. That's not a good fit either. They're, they're going to burn out and fail and, and uh, you know, things are going to be bad. And so the question that I'm hearing underneath this one, rather than core competencies, it's how can we better match the skills that exist, the broad range of skills in the DEI space that exist with the needs of companies that don't know what they want? And this is a huge problem. When the clients don't know what they want, or they think they know what they want, but they're wrong, and the practitioners don't even know what they have or what exists in the field, there's always going to be alignment problems. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now. I, it's, it's interesting, too, because... Uh, I don't think what I'm about to, you, you, you preface something you said earlier with, this is controversial. I, I, I'm going to say, I don't think this is controversial. Uh, what I'm about to say is I don't think these organizations, one, I don't think they don't understand what they're trying to solve, but it's because they don't care enough about it to understand mm -hmm. it. Right. So yeah. it's, it's, Hey, look, um, we, I'm looking in the media. I'm looking at, I Googled some things and, we think, we think we should do something. I don't really care enough about it to like do any type of actual analysis or research or, or anything like that. Like we would do if we launched a product or if we were to do some type of rebrand or any other like business decision. So let's just go ahead and hire this person and that's real and see what happens, you know? Yeah. I see that a lot. So you know what the problem is? The problem. Okay. Well, first of all, it is a problem that they do that. Definitely. The problem that's just as bad is the fact that there are practitioners who see that, know that, and still go along with it anyways. That's not acceptable, right? Like, we can't have practitioners who say, like, hey, I know you're full of BS, and I know you don't want to solve the problem, but I'd love to get paid. Let's do it. Let's do a 60-minute unconscious bias training. Let's do a one-off talk. Let's, let's do something fun, and we'll get people excited. We'll all take the implicit association test. I'll share a sad story about being from a member of a marginalized group. 
I'll talk about the business case for diversity and everyone comes away from this feeling good and I get paid my five grand or 10 grand or whatever. What we need to do is when we see clients, and there are lots of them that refuse to care or who believe they can get away with not caring or doing the bare minimum, it's our job as practitioners to hold them to that higher standard. I recently had like a long protracted series of negotiations with a really big company that essentially said, Lily, we want you to survey our workforce of thousands of people in like one month and deliver a full report and analysis and everything. And I'm like, one month? Like that's, that's impossible. Like there's so much work that needs to go into that. There's focus groups, there's interviews, there's one-on-ones at that scale with thousands of people. Like if you want good data, that'll take me at least three months, if not more than that, if not six, if not a year to get people ready for that. Um, And they said, well, some other folks we're talking to say that they can do it in two weeks. And I'm like, who the hell are you talking about? Like, who are you talking to that can promise surveying your entire workforce in two weeks? And then they're like, well, you know, their data isn't that rigorous. And I'm like, then, well, then that's why, like, like you, you, you want to send out a survey to your entire workforce with like two questions on it. One of which is like, how much do you like diversity and call that a survey? Like, no, right? Like, like the fact that some of our practitioners are willing to race to the bottom is how we got into this mess in the first place. If our clients ask for shitty practices that won't fix anything, it's our job to say, then I'm not going to work with you. That's not going to work. That's not going to fix things. It's going to be a waste of your time and money. This is the bare minimum of effectiveness. And either you go for this or you find yourself another practitioner. I wish more folks were willing to stand up for that. The thing about it is, is that like, how much of that, Lily, do you think is wishful? Because at the end of the day, a lot of these DEI practitioners, I mean, we need money to survive. So am I going to take $10,000 to do something I know won't work, but it's $10,000 and I can feed my family or whatever? Or do I make a like principled and intellectual stand? Um, one I would take, but because I have the financial privilege to do so, right? I think like that's the question is like, what does it look like for a bunch of folks to practice solidarity who may be in an economic economic space where they might can't turn down money to do to do something that's going to fail. Yeah. Well, um, my second book was all about that, actually. <laughs> the Ethical Sellout, the uh, entire premise of that book is like what happens when people from marginalized communities have to compromise their morals to survive. Um, and the major ideas of that book is like, you need to be honest with yourselves about the impact of your your actions, right? I'm, I'm not going to tell you what decision to make. Um, and for folks in that circumstance, like, yeah, you do have to weigh taking money from folks and surviving with being part of the problem. Like, that's the reality of it. I think that there are always more options than we would like to think there are. Um, for For one, right? we can always look for better clients. There's so much interest in DEI right now. We have the ability to be choosy. Um, We have the ability to put ourselves out there and to make a name for ourselves and to, you know, stand by our principles. And we have the ability 
to work with other practitioners, to work with other folks in our field, to find community, to work in solidarity with each other. You know, this is not a, this is not a zero sum game of DEI practice, right? Like we shouldn't be operating in scarcity mindsets that basically say, well, if I don't take this gig, then, then I get nothing and someone else gets it. So I have to jump on it, even if I know it's a failure. Like, we need to be working together, right? Like we need to be working together to pass on opportunities to each other. We need to be working together to raise the standard of this industry. Um, like we have to do that. I, I remember, um, look, in, in the beginning of my practice for two years straight, um, I was making like half minimum wage. I, I, I was making poverty wages based in the Bay Area. And a lot of that was because I didn't see takers for the work that I wanted to do. And so, yeah, like Zach, I, I compromised. I delivered a, like quite a few workshops that I think were shit and didn't do anything and didn't move the needle. And I did that knowingly. I did that very guiltily. I felt horrible doing it. And then as soon as I had enough ground to stand on that I didn't need that to survive, I stopped doing it. And I immediately switched all of my work over to higher impact stuff. Now, I'm not saying everyone can do that, right? There are some people that just ride that line of like, you're barely profitable. You, you can't do anything else. Um, and to some extent, this is why we need to be pushing for corporations to change their behavior too. Because until corporations start asking for better things, there's always going to be that demand for services that don't work. And that's always going to put practitioners in this sort of situation. So can practitioners do something about it? Yeah. Like, I don't think we're powerless. Um, do we bear all the risk responsibility? No. There's a reason why they call it the DEI industrial complex. A good half of that relationship, if not more, is coming from corporations. Yeah. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. Like, I, I do, I do want to talk about, I do want to talk about your latest book. I want to talk about, and I want to understand... I think we've been kind of talking around it this whole time, but we've like, been talking the motivation... about the uh, book the whole time. Yeah. <laughs> this is the book, right? I, I think, I think my, my my question is: Did you write it thinking that it was like a unique or new perspective in this in this space? Do you believe it's adding to like an already vibrant chorus of voices? around how to be active and impactful in DEI. Um, I think it's new. Yeah. I'm, I'm curious. Like, I'm curious. Like, when, like, what was, was, was it just, or was it just, look, my voice is my voice and I need to get it out irrespective of if I'm adding to something or not. No, I, I needed to write a book that added something. Um, I, so look, um, I'll, I'll be real with you, Zach. I, I write a lot already. Like if I just wanted to get my voice out, I'd write more on LinkedIn. I write so much on LinkedIn. Like I write too much on LinkedIn. Um, but what, what I wanted to do with this book in particular is put forward a perspective that I've seen a little bit. I've seen whispers of like, we need more accountability. We need more, um, we need more rigor. We need more standards in this field. I've seen a lot of folks calling for it. I haven't seen a lot of folks answering it. Like everyone's agreed that the problem is the problem, but no one's agreed on what the solution is. And yeah, I have opinions about the solution. So I wrote the book to be the answer that folks were asking the question to. And I also wrote the book for, for the practitioner that I used to be. Like earlier in, in my career, I was desperately looking around, like 
Like I was like, look, someone teach me how to do this work right. Like I know that the work I'm doing is subpar. I know that like there's no support for this. I know that like all I'm going off of is is what I learned from a few studies I've, I've read in school, as many books as I can read. But like, I know I'm not incredible. Like I wish I had more support, more guidance, and it just wasn't there. So I wrote the book to be a guidebook, a handbook for practitioners, not not something to convince me that the work was worth doing. I know that. A lot of us know that. We all have our why. But to tell me exactly how to do the work to be effective. The how is lacking sorely. Um, so the book is, um, it's it's not my own story, right? Like it's it's a resource. I, I crammed this, this thing full of like, uh, I don't know, like four, four to 500 references. Like there's so much research in this thing. Um, one of the the things that I had created as a practitioner going out was a was was an Excel spreadsheet actually of different research articles that I had read throughout the course of my career. I can pull it up now. It's about three thousand references big, and it took me wow. almost a decade to pull together. Right, wow. um, I couldn't put all three thousand here, but I put five hundred, and that's a lot. Um, that's a lot. Pretty much every single page of this book has at least one or two references on it. Um, and, and I did that on purpose, right? Because I wanted all of that research that I had compiled for my own practice to make it in, into the hands of any practitioner. I like, and like, well, let me ask you this. So you said, you said something earlier about you, you see there being a high demand and inter continued interest in, in the DEI work in this space. Um, you don't see... Do you see DEI as like how it exists today radically changing between now and 2030? Yeah, I think so. Um, not so not in the sense that all DEI work now will become better by 2030, but take it this way. So let's say like the the best DEI in the world or the best DEI work in the world is here and the worst DEI work in the world is here right? In, in 2020. By 2030, I don't think this is going to shift much. Like, I think we're, we're going to still be doing shitty DEI work. Someone out there is going to keep doing this work because there's going to be a demand for it. But I think the, the top, right, the best DEI work in the world continues to grow and, and improve. And it's my genuine hope that industry pressure will slowly move this up. And ideally, ideally, this is my personal perspective, government regulation moves this up too. Right. So I think right now, the best folks in the in the field right now can push this highest standard even higher. I don't think folks like me are going to have much of an impact alone on the folks who are doing terrible work and don't care about doing otherwise. You know what will government regulation, right? Like we saw back in the 1960s, right? Um, it's dead in the water now, but affirmative action is one of the most powerful things that have ever happened in the quote-unquote DEI space. It moved the needle dramatically, and nothing else that's come afterwards has had anything close to that amount of impact. If we can get good government regulation, if we can get more standards and more expectations from watchdogs, from third parties, from indexes, hopefully that bottom line will not, not bottom line, that bottom standard right? The furthest extent of our work will move up. And so is this a radical transformation? I don't know. 
maybe, but it's something. Like, I, I truly believe that our field will improve. We just have to be the ones to improve it. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, affirmative action was, it definitely helped black and brown folks. Uh, Undeniably. I said it. Undeniably. Undeniably. And it also helped white women a lot. <laughs> I was going to I was going to say the biggest beneficiaries were white women. They were. They I think were. you know, but you're right, right? Like the rate like regulation I I agree. Especially when you think about like this ESG space and like how even there's like more crackdowns on like board diversity, which I think is a I think the bar is like underground, but it's something to start. It's something. Yeah. And and we're seeing real movement in that space, like glacial movement, sure, but like they had decades to self-regulate and get that shit right themselves. And guess what? They didn't. And now we have NASDAQ standards to basically say like, well, bars underground, but you got to meet it now. And I'm so grateful that we have stuff like that, right? Like, is it going to fix the world by itself? No, not, not in a million years, but I'm glad we have it. Lily, I think we could talk all day. Um, I appreciate like you coming on. I think I would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about, or at least discuss like you said, and you're right. We talk about, uh, intersectionality is kind of like parsley sprinkled on stuff now. Like we just kind of, it's kind of throw it on everything. I will say though, that I get exhausted. Um, when we, when we see, we have conversations around the marginalization or oppression or attack or terrorism, experienced by specific groups and then we see marginalized groups um attack one another or pit themselves or or see them pitted against one another right mm -hmm. so like most recently uh we've seen ongoing narratives about um when you think about the when you think about the q uh club shooting um and we're seeing narratives of of somehow even though it was a white mormon that committed this heinous act we're seeing conversations around how there's uh transphobia and homophobia within uh, other black and brown communities and it's like okay first of all like i don't that's that's fair homophobia and transphobia are real and they exist within a plethora of communities they exist in every community they exist in including every community. communities of queer and trans people <laughs> including communities of queer trans people also can we have a discussion about the fact that there are black and brown queer and trans people like like it's it's almost like we, we we're we're dedicated to these binary contexts ironically um when talking about any group or any type of situation i mean i'm curious like what advice or like points of view do you have regarding em embracing intersectionality in real life like yeah. when it comes to like and 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 analyzing groups and people and trends and and having even critical conversations what role does intersectionality like let's take it from the lofty kind of like parsley word that we use that we have that we t often employ it as and let's put it into practice like how where does it come into practice with in situations like this yeah well let's let's make it um blisteringly practical so intersectionality as it was designed to be used by kimberly crenshaw is an analytical tool it's a tool it's not an outcome it's not the end result it's not an impact it's a tool. And so when you take an intersectional lens to something, that's just a fancy way to say, you look at the impact of something on multiple dimensions of identity, right? Just, just like that. So in this situation to deploy 
an intersectional lens, you would say, how, how would the many identities involved in, for example, the shooter's experiences impact how this could have happened? And then you could also say, how, how does this event having happened affect multiple communities, including people with multiple marginalizations, right? How does this event having happened affect queer trans people of color, queer trans women of color, queer trans disabled women of color? And then you move on. Like you do that analysis, you say like, here's all the critique, here's what I understand, and then you do something with it, right? Like this is this is what everyone misses about intersectionality. They, they use the lens, they use the words, they write their critique, and then they're like, I did it. I did it. I have used intersectionality. And I'm like, what are you, like an undergrad student, right? Like, no, like you're not just here playing like academic experiments with these ideas. Like, it's not homework. You gotta do something with it. So this thing happens in the news. It impacts the community in a certain way. What does that change about how you approach those communities? How does that change your advocacy? How does it change what you do and say, invest in, how you react? All of these. So I don't know, when someone says like, I took an intersectional approach to understanding the impact of the Club Q shooter, that I'm just like, okay, cool. And, and then they look at me and I'm like, and what? And I'm like, and then what did you do after you used the analysis, right? Like the lens is the same as like, I put something under a microscope. Cool. The microscope is the tool. And what did it tell you? What are you going to do about it? Right? Like, it's like, well, I looked at the virus under the microscope and I found out that it was pneumonia. And I'm like, okay. And, and then they're like, and then I put it on the shelf and didn't do anything about it. Like, that's how I feel when people talk about, you know, like intersectionality. They, they get half of the assignment perfectly right. And then they throw it in the garbage, um, which pisses me off. So like, ask yourself this, I don't care what analytical lens you use. What are you going to do about it? Like, how does that change your actions? And then if it does, great. Then talk about intersectionality all you want. But again, tools are nothing unless you leverage them to action. And a lot of folks right now are going through the intellectual exercise and not taking action. And that pisses me off. Lily, um, it's always a pleasure. Um, I, I, I'm glad that... Uh, that you're, I'm glad that your second, that your your book is out. I want everybody to click the link in the show notes. Make sure you get it right now because it's out right now. When you're hearing this, it's been out for a second, right? So you should have been got the book. You know what I'm saying? Like pull over if you're flying on your airplane. You're listening to this. Tell the pilot put on the hazard lights. Pull over to the side so no one gets hurt. Tell the pilot to download. You know what I'm saying? Get the book also. No, look, I um I'm so appreciative of your work. I'm thankful for all things that you're doing. Um, please don't be a stranger. It shouldn't have taken the book for me to for us to connect again. And so let's connect more. again. We'll more. Yeah, let's get, we got to do more. We got to do more. Like you said, though, it feels like it's been like a day and 10 years at the same time. But like we got to make sure let's get like let's make sure we get together next year. Um, and let's just figure out like what's the next thing? Because like there's so many conversations I still want to have. Um, yeah, I can't believe I, we're I mean, done. I, I was looking at the time and I'm like, what? We've been talking for like two minutes. So. Maybe we'll um, have to do another. <laughs> we got to do another one. We got to do another one. Um, is there anything else that you want to plug before we let you go? Oh, man. Um, well, uh, buying the book, great. Love that. Please support it. Um, if you've already bought the book, as I think many folks who listen to your podcast or folks who know what's up and might have bought the book already, 
write a review. Please, please, please. Reviews are one of the most effective ways you can give back and ways in which you can support the book. So like, don't be a stranger. Uh, write a review anywhere you bought the book. Write it on Amazon. Write it on Goodreads. Anywhere. Um, those mean the world to me. Also, a little sweetener for all of y'all, I am still doing an autograph campaign on LinkedIn. So just post a picture of the book, tag me, uh, use the hashtag DEID constructed, and I will swoop into those comments and write you a personalized autograph. I've written about one to 200 so far, and every single note has been unique. I haven't recycled the same note yet, and I don't intend to start soon. So get on that before I get too tired to keep offering it. And um, yeah. Thanks for supporting me in the book, and I hope it brings lots of value to you. I love it. Lily, you're a friend of the show. We can't wait to have you back. Likewise. Can't wait to come back. Take care. And we're back. Yo, Lily, thank you so much for being on the show. Shout out to everything that you're working on, including... DEID constructed. Make sure you click the link in the show notes to learn more about them and their book, which is fire. Okay. And look, again, we cannot change anything without it being addressed and faced. Okay. So if you're listening to this and you feel offended because I said DEI is failing and you're in this space, I mean, good. I, I'm glad you're feeling something, right? That doesn't mean that you're particularly a failure. Maybe. I don't know. But the reality is we have not seen real change in these spaces. In fact, what we're now seeing is um, we're seeing new laws being enacted to protect things that we already have that we thought we already thought we had the rights to like our hair. So the Crown Act was passed, which is great. (laughs) The Crown Act protects black women from having to change the hair that comes out of their head. But y'all, the Constitution don't grant us protection to to keep our hair the same. We had to create a law for that. And now organizations are spending millions and millions of dollars in marketing and branding to promote the Crown Act. And I'm not hating, yo, black entrepreneurs get your money. Black women get your money, right? This is not about that. What I'm saying is that's not actually moving anything forward. Celebrating rights that we should already have is not actually progress, right? That's not reimagination. That's theater. Again, it's theater. I continue to use that word. It's theater. We have to do something different. We have to do something better. And that means that means being a little bit uncomfortable and having some disquieting conversations and being willing to risk something. That's what it means. Look, I love you. Uh, happy Black History Month. Continue to take care of yourself. Next week, uh, we're going to continue our series with Pfizer. I'm excited about that. Um, we're actually going to continue and continue to talk about Black History after February. Shocker. Black History is American history. But um, I want you to take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Peace. elevation post-production is handled by jeremy jackson got a topic suggestion email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com you can find us online on twitter facebook instagram and living-corporate.com thanks for listening stay tuned